you have to love that idea of God abiding with us. We know in Scripture that we are to abide in Him. Christ says, abide in me. But ultimately, what we need is for Him to graciously and sovereignly abide with us. And that reminds me of the series that we did on the Sermon on the Mount just this past year as we come to the very beginning and we see that that blessed are the poor in spirit, that those who are poor in spirit are those who cry out to a sovereign, gracious, merciful God who comes to us graciously and abides with us. I'm grateful to our ladies who, especially the women's ministry team, who uh, pulled the ladies together last weekend and went away on a women's retreat. I think it was 49, 50, I think, ladies went. Praise God for that. And uh, it sounds like everyone had a great time together in fellowship, but also in the Word. And I'm just so grateful for Leanne and her leadership of that ministry and all of the ladies who help her. Uh, I want to just remind the guys that there's something comparable coming up. Um, we, We hope it will be at least... Somewhat comparable. The ladies outmatch out us uh, frequently in these things. But uh, it'll be at the beginning of March. And so you've seen that posted on the city. And that will be an opportunity for the guys to get together. Similarly, go away and just spend time together in the Lord, in his word. And uh, a local pastor named Tony Carter, uh, who is uh, in East Point, will be leading that for us. So we're grateful for him and just really excited to see what the Lord leads him to share with us over the course of that weekend. Walt and I had lunch with him, I guess it was about a week and a half ago, and we just sat down for about two hours and talked about it. And we're just encouraged by by his desire to do that for us and uh, by what he will bring to us from God's word. So please, guys, take advantage of that uh, if you're able to. And uh, don't let money be an issue. So I know that, you know, with, with us guys, there's a lot of pride, and you might think, well, if I don't have the money to do it, I'm certainly not going to tell anybody that. I'm just not going to go. Uh, I mean, that's how we work, I think, generally. So um, I would just say, uh, if that is you, find a, a man whom you trust and humbly tell him, you don't have the money. And uh, we, we, will, we will talk through that with you, and, and we'll, we don't want you not to go because you don't have the funds Absolutely not. So please come and talk to us uh, if, if that's the concern. Okay, with those things being said, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 13. Yes, 3 to 13, not just 3 or 4 or 5. Verses 3 to 13. Today is the fourth sermon in our series on Genesis. And so far, we've taken time to camp out on verse 1. We spent our first week looking just at verse 1, and then the second week looking just at verse 2. And then last week, we did a bit of a flyover. We went all the way from verse 3 to 31, and what we tried to do last week was to frame the entirety of the six days of creation as we see them in Genesis chapter 1. And what I wanted to do in that sermon more than anything else was draw attention to recurring elements because in many ways, that's what holds these six days together. These recurring phrases that tell us that this is like the glue that holds these six days together, these strands of phrases that go throughout. Drawn primarily from those phrases we saw last week, 
uh, God's word, his order, and his delight. And so we talked about how at the center of the six days of God's creative work is this phrase, and God said. That God spoke and it was. We talked about how God's word is effectual and authoritative, uh, meaning that it is powerful. It is able to accomplish that which it desires and that God's word is authoritative, meaning that the only response in all of creation to it is that of obedience and submission. And we talked about his order that all throughout this creation account of the six days of God's work, we see various forms of order. There are various facets and aspects of order here that God is unfolding as God unfolds his creation. Then we saw his delight, that God looks at what he makes and he says it's good. And then at the end, the pinnacle of all of that declaring of good is that God looks at it and says it's very good. So God is like a master craftsman or a careful potter who looks at his work, and at the end of all of it, he looks upon it with delight, and he says, very good. And one of the implications that we, that we looked at last week is how God's work influences our concept of work. So we have basically three ways to think about that. Just to, to briefly repeat what we looked at last week, one way is to think about work itself, that God sees work as a good thing. He himself models an attitude towards work, that work is a good thing. And it was fitting last week that we had largely in our congregation uh, men and husbands where we could just camp out on this idea of the necessity, value, and dignity of work. And then we saw how God delights in his work at the end and how we as human beings should also likewise delight in our work. And then not only that, but we saw a pattern for how to work that very frequently we wonder, how do we go about working? How do we work well? Whatever tasks we have before us each day, whatever responsibilities we have before us, there's a way to go about work that's actually built into creation as we see the creator forming and molding the the creation in the first chapter. So God gives us a model for how to go about work in an efficient and responsible way. So that's what we looked at last week as we did a flyover of verses 3 to 31. And today what I want to do is go back and dig a little deeper into these individual days as we see six of them. But that, of course, raises the question, how should we group these days? This was a a question that I faced uh, over the last couple of weeks, is how do I go about preaching uh, these days? How do we group them and and discuss them and consider them? Do we do one, maybe one day at a time? Uh, Maybe you'll be thankful that we did not take that approach. Uh, Or maybe two days at a time, just arbitrarily split them up into threes, Uh, How do we go about it? Well, I can't say for certain how we'll go about the latter three, especially given the fact that man and the various facets there deserve uh, extensive treatment. But what I can say is that what appears to be the case here is a structure in these six days of forming and filling. In other words, on the first three days, God forms spaces, locations, spheres, we could say. 
And then on the latter three days, he fills those spaces. He fills those locations. He fills those spheres. And so we have formation and then we have fullness. We have forming and filling as we go through these six days of creation. Three on the one hand and three on the other. And in general, this does appear to be the case. Many have have pointed this out, and I think that this really does hold up. And it's interesting that in chapter 1, verse 2, that verse that talks about, look look at it very briefly here. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void. And it's interesting that what you find in the six days of creation is the first three are remedying the the, the formlessness. We have formlessness, and so what does God do? He forms it. And then we have it being void, empty. It's void and empty, and what does God do? He remedies that by filling it. And so it appears that formlessness and void are, are are reversed in those six days of creation. However, some have taken this structure, this forming and filling structure, as an indication that the six days of creation should be interpreted logically rather than chronologically. In fact, a number of biblical scholars, a number of commentators on Genesis will take this approach. That rather than understanding these days as a chronological progression or a sequence, they understand these days to be logically grouped together. They say that here we have a literary framework which in which we have the first three days matching up with the second set of three days. And this is called the framework view. Uh, As I discussed, they introduced briefly last week, and we'll continue to discuss these in part, but I, I, I introduced to you the fact that the, the six days of creation are controversial, that they are uh, interpreted various, in various ways by a number of Christians and even under the umbrella, which, you know, this, this umbrella gets wider and wider and wider. Uh, but but un- even under the umbrella of evangelicalism, it is quite free and fluid in terms of how these six days are understood or how they are interpreted. And one of the views, one of the three major views, I think someone has said there's 14 or so views on how to interpret the six days of creation, but one of the views is called the framework view. And it simply sees that these first set of three days and second set of three days are grouped logically and not chronologically, and that's how they are to be interpreted and understood. Advocates argue that each of the first three days corresponds with its counterpart in the last three days. So it sees not only a grouping of three and then a grouping of three, but it says the the first day corresponds with the fourth day, and the second day corresponds with the fifth day, and the third day corresponds with the sixth day. And I would say that there are three problems with this view, three, three reasons why I don't think this view of the days should be accepted. The first of those is that the parallelism is not as tight as some would suggest. So this idea, look, clearly you have these two threes, one and four and so forth. They all match up. But the problem is that if you're taking a forming and filling structure, so stay with me on this. I know this is tedious. If you're taking a forming and filling structure, the problem is that day four seems to go more with day two if that's what you're going to apply to it. Days three and five match better than two and five, and days three and six don't really go together very well because if you're saying that day six fills day three, well, day three you have the C's. 
but the fish have already been created. So in other words, I would submit that there's not quite the sort of literary precision that some would want to to identify in holding up this literary device that they say explains the six days. Second, in principle, why should a literary or logical arrangement, if discovered in a text, why should that serve to undermine a chronological arrangement? In other words, why would we assume that the two are mutually exclusive? If, in fact, we do find in Genesis chapter 1 quite a coherent, well-structured, even precise, logical framework of understanding, a way to sort of group these uh, and and a, a pretty beautiful literary device at work, why would that necessarily exclude chronological sequence as well? The two, I would argue, are not mutually exclusive. And third, these days really do appear to be chronological in nature. So one commentator, Derek Kidner, writes this. The march of the days is too majestic a progress to carry no implication of ordered sequence. It also seems oversubtle to adopt a view of the passage which discounts one of the primary impressions it makes on the ordinary reader. What he means by that is this. Anyone reading this text sees progression. Anyone reading this text, an ordinary reader, sees steps. There's this, and then there's this, and then progression. There's this, and then there's this. And then you get to this sort of temporal apex at the end of the chapter where man is created. So it does very much seem to be moving in a progressive way, and not merely to be a literary structuring That is merely a literary device that does not speak to chronology. So that's just part of the discussion that people have when coming to this. And as I said, there are many. In fact, you might could even argue a majority of uh, well-respected evangelical commentators who would interpret the text this way. And one uh, one of the critiques of this is that it's a, a way of dodging the science and faith issues or the issues of dealing with the geological and astronomical and other kinds of questions that go along with the biblical interpretation. It's a way of just simply saying, well, we don't even have to deal with that. We don't have to, to deal with the, the, the issues of science and theology or science and exegesis. We get to sort of skip around that and just say it's a literary device. This is one of the critiques, and I think in some ways it's warranted. So I'll just... Uh, I'll just leave that there, but there's something to to consider. But one thing I want you to see is that this forming and filling structure, I think, is valid. And I think that one can recognize this forming and filling, which is very clear there, without necessarily holding to this framework view. All of that to say, this is why I am treating these first three days together as a unit, because they are presented in the text as a unit. Okay, so if you're still awake, the title for the sermon this morning is Days 1 to 3, Formation Towards Production. And if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Genesis 1, 3 to 13. Genesis 1, 3 to 13. This is God's word. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. It could be translated that way as well. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Let's pray to the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Our Father, we come to a passage like this and recognize that there are many different views on this text. Many different views, Father, from men who, from every appearance, love you and know you and serve you. So God, we recognize with humility that there are many difficulties and many struggles that Christians have in being intellectually honest and being well-thinking people, those who are rational and those who put together the evidences which you have given us from general revelation and from your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful as we interpret this scripture. We pray that you would uh, be merciful to us in our frailty and weakness and that you would give us the wisdom to see what your word says. And Father, we pray that we would submit to what your word says, that we would be open to understand it from all of Scripture, but that we would, at the end of the day, not allow external truths, so-called, or external knowledge, or theories, or hypotheses, or methods, dictate how we understand, ultimately, what your word says. But, Father, that we would read it and understand what it means as it was written, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would be faithful interpreters so God, we just ask for your help. I know that many have come to this text and have come away with different understandings. But Father, we also know that the mind of man is sinful. We also know that even in our best intentions, that we are depraved, that our minds are turned towards self, that we do not see sometimes the obvious, or that we in pride hold our view above that of others, and we... we pat ourselves on the back for holding a view that we think is, is more faithful and ultimately is really fuel for our pride. 
So God, at every turn, from every angle, we recognize that sin and temptation is playing a role in how we think and how we interpret. So God, we are so dependent on your spirit. And we pray that he will give us understanding as we study and as we think. And God, would you just allow us to see you as a glorious creator as we study your word. Help us to see your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the center of all your work. And in your creation, would we see and meditate upon your recreation, that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that there will be no more need for the sun, no more need for created light, because you yourself and your glory will shine forth forever. And we will truly abide with you forever. God, help us look forward to that day. Even as we study the beginning, would we meditate upon the end? Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these first three days, I want to draw your attention really to four pairs, four entryways into what we find here in these first three days. Days Because they hold together really as a unit, I think, in, in giving us a picture of formation, I think it's better to treat them all as a whole and to walk through them thematically as opposed to going day one, day two, day three. And so here are the four pairs that I want uh, to, to, that I want to use to help us dig into what we have here in the text. The first is sequence and space. The second is this and that. The third, fertility and food. And then finally, God and then so-called gods. So these four pairs, I hope, will guide us to an understanding or a better understanding of what we find here in these first three days from Genesis 1, verses 3 to 13. So let's look first at sequence and space. What do I mean by that? Well, let's answer the question, what is God doing in these first three days of his creative work. I've already indicated more generally that he's forming. But the most obvious feature is this activity of separating. In fact, this is the one idea or the one activity that is at the center of each of these three days. God is working to separate. He is separating in each of them. And these various acts of separating provide time and space, which is, which is the beginning point. Really, we have a framework for all creation here. As, as God is forming, he's providing a spatial and temporal framework. So let's look at each of these. Day one, look at verses four and five. On day one, verses four and five, after speaking some form of non-solar light into existence, let me comment on that for a moment. I do think that this is... This is a non-solar, unidentified form of light. It's a created light, so it's not God himself. It's not God's glory itself. It's a created light, but it is not the sun. The sun seems to be made on day four. Now, some have argued, well, uh, the language can actually imply that the sun appears on day four, so the sun was created earlier. I am, at this time, not convinced of that. It seems that the sun and the moon and the stars are actually made on day four, and that on day one, there's a non-solar light source that is providing light, that God speaks into existence to provide light for the earth. And presumably, the earth is rotating on its axis at this point. And so that this light is functioning much like the sun will come to function on day four, but it is not the sun. 
The relationship between this light and the sun is also unclear. It could be that there's a relationship between what God initially does here in day one and what he will do later when he puts when he makes the sun and that these two intersect and become one. It's just unclear. But anyway, after speaking some form of non-solar light into existence, we get this. And God, here's the word, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. This separation of light from darkness gave rise to chronological sequence or the experience of time. So for the first time, you get this notion of sequence. You have daytime followed by nighttime, which is what we experience in the course of a day. And one of the reasons that I hold to a 24-hour day view, in other words, I would reject the view that what we have in these six days of creation are six unidentified, unspecified ages. So that there's day one, and that could have been this many millions or billions of years, and then there's day two, and that could have been this extended period of time. One of the reasons that I reject that is because the way that we understand the meaning of a word is from its context. So those who argue for the day-age theory or the day-age view will often point out that day can mean all sorts of things in the Bible. And that, of course, is very true. Uh, with, with God, a day is as a thousand years. We know that that throughout the scripture, there's language that implies that the word day is a, is a fluid idea. We even get at the beginning of chapter 2, as we go into Genesis 2, it says, on the day that the Lord God created. So there, it's referring to day as a, as a period of time, the period of God's creation. So we know that the word day can mean all sorts of things. So how do we determine what day means here? as opposed to elsewhere, because we're not trying to determine what day means elsewhere. We're trying to determine what day means right here. And I would argue that when we come to the end of the day and it says there was evening and there was morning, day one, or the first day, depending on how you translate that, it goes on second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, that what we have here is something like this. So follow me on this. That day, we work backwards. Day is defined by what? Evening and morning, the passage of evening and morning. So we have a clear definition from the context of what he's talking about. Day is uh, understood by the passage of evening and morning. Okay, well, what is evening and morning? Well, we take a step back a little further, and what are we told? There is day and night. There's daytime and nighttime. So what is evening and morning? Evening would be the transition from day to night. And what would morning be? The, the transition from night to day. So it seems to me that the context is abundantly clear here. And there's questions about how we deal with the seventh day where there is no evening and morning. And we'll talk about that when we come to that. But it seems to me if our question is, what does Moses mean by these six days of creation? And many disagree on this. It seems to me that the context, if the context is to be king, and it seems to me that the king says that we are dealing with real 24-hour days. We know after day four, when the sun is made, that the sun and moon are made in order to delineate days and years, signs and seasons. So I've heard some say, well, 
we, we can say that after day four, we have 24-hour days. But before day four, we don't know what we have. That appears to me to be nonsense. Because if we have the same language used, follow me, for day four, five, and six, that is used for day one, two, and three, it seems to me that to make the creation of the sun the deciding factor is illogical. They all appear to be, the six days appear to be delineated in the same way. So I take these to be literal 24-hour days. Whatever the implications are of that, that is how I understand them. So that's day one. We see this separating. Then day two, look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. After speaking the expanse into existence. So we got day one, the light is spoken into existence, and then there's this separation between day and night. And then look at this verse seven. After God speaks the expanse into existence, it says, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So what do we have here? Here we have spatial separation that is vertical. So on day one, we have a kind of temporal separation. We have a separation between day and night or light and darkness, which gives rise to daytime and nighttime. Here we have spatial separation, but this is a vertical spatial separation. This watery mass that we get in verse two is cut by the creation of the sky. So the sky is made, or the expanse, the heavens, is made, and that cuts the waters that are below and separates them from the waters that are above. This is the sky where the birds will fly. The sky separates these waters above, which we find in clouds, from the waters that are on the earth. The water vapors and clouds and the waters that we have on the earth are separated so that there is a, a, a breathable atmosphere in between the waters on the earth and the waters in the clouds above the expanse through which birds fly. That's the image. You have the sky, birds flying around, you have clouds up there, and you have seas, lakes, rivers, and so forth down here on the earth. All of this going back, of course, to the separation. God is separating vertically, spatially. And then day three, look at verse nine. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. This is also a spatial separation. Notice that, but it's a horizontal one. So vertically, we've got some space separated. The waters below distinguished from the waters above. So there's a sky in between. And now what happens? What does God do on the third day? He separates all that watery mass that's on the earth. The whole earth's covered with water. And God separates out those waters. He gathers them together into one place. And as he pulls all the waters together into one place, the land, begins to emerge. The land comes up and takes its form and the waters are restrained in their basins so that we see the appearance of the land. But before we attempt to draw out some implications from all of this, I want to go ahead and move to our next point. So we've got sequence and space. We've got time and space, both horizontally and vertically. Now I want to go to our second point, which is this and that. What do I mean by by this, this and that. Just as God separates temporally 
And spatially, we see that he also separates categorically. So stay with me on this. He separates categorically in that he gives distinctions and definitions. Do you see this? This is the work of God. We should marvel at these things. God says to Job, where were you when I did all of these things? We see God communicating to Job. Job is left in a state of awe and wonder at God. When you read in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom calling out. Wisdom saying, I was there with God when he did this and did that and created in this way. All the details that you get there. And then throughout the Psalms, all of this separating and dividing work may seem tedious, but this is the reason our world is the way it is. This is the reason why you can go to the beach in the summer. This is the reason why you can go to the lake and get out on your jet ski or whatever. This is, this is the reason why we have bodies of water and mountains and sky is because of everything we're reading here. But it's not just these divisions. It's also the categorical divisions. Look at day one. Look at day one, verse five again. God called the light day. You see that? God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Look at, look at day two and three, verse eight. And God called the expanse heaven, put a label on it, heaven or sky. And then verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. Temporal, spatial separations, categorical separations. Here we have time periods, different spaces, distinctions and definitions. Now last week, we noted that this order and sovereignty calls us to a state of worship and awe of God as it should. We read these things and we go out and we view the natural world and we see that the natural world shows us what we read in Genesis. It gives us this beautiful, well-ordered, law-abiding, if you will, creation that declares the glory of God. Of the Lord. But I want to draw out one other implication for us as we think through all these details, all this separating and dividing that I think is very important for our way of thinking, very important for our worldview. And here is what it is God is the one who defines reality and identity, God is the one who sets the boundaries, God is the one who defines your gender. God is the one who defines the meaning of your marriage. God is the one who defines everything because he's the maker of everything. He sets boundaries. He defines. He divides. He separates. He distinguishes. He is the sovereign one alone who can say what is. He's the only one who can put a label. He's the only one who can give us an understanding of every aspect of reality. We see this even with this language, each according to its kind on day three, with the creation of vegetation, that God here defines the boundaries and nothing can transgress those boundaries. I would also say from this, it is God who defines what is right and wrong. And what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is true and false, is that which participates in the order of his creation. Notice in Romans chapter 1, 
when the issue of homosexuality comes up there in that passage, what is it related to? It's related to a transgression of creation. When you read that in Romans 1, it is a, the problem with it. There's many problems with it, but, but at the center of it is a, a trading out as the, as the creator God has been traded out for created gods. There is subsequent to that and as an outgrowth of that, a trading in for, for what is natural and what is according to creation for that which is unnatural, which is creatively perverse, turned around. And so... It is God who defines all of these things, which means that you can mount up all the experts in the world on marriage, on gender, on sexuality, or on any other kind of thing. And ultimately, we as Christian people can be confident that our God, the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of every human being in his image, is the one who can tell us what is. What is right, what is good, what is fitting, what is done well, and what the identity of all things are. So we get this distinction all throughout this passage. So we see sequence in space, we see this and that, and then thirdly, we see fertility and food. Let's go to that third point now. One interesting thing that we should notice about day two is that it lacks the repeated phrase, it was good. It's interesting. We read through these various days and we come to day two and it doesn't say it was good. We're kind of like, well, hold on a second. I thought all of this creation is good. Why, why do we not have it is good at day two? You won't find that phrase in verses six to eight. Why is that? Well, it tells us something important about the third day. It tells us that day two is really setting up day three. And only at the conclusion of day three do we have what is good or beneficial for habitation. Remember, we're moving towards the creation of man who will inhabit the earth. We're moving towards the living creatures on the earth and the pinnacle of those creatures being man. And so it is not until day three that the earth really becomes more habitable. And so what does God do on day three? Let's read that. Look at verse nine. Day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And I have put up here fertility and food because that's ultimately where we're mo- what we're moving towards. But what I want you to see here in day three are these three things. We have foundation, we have fertility, and we have food. So first, foundation. 
The land upon which man will live and work and serve emerges from the waters. Look, at, as you go to chapter 2, we see that man is to till and to keep the garden. That God puts him in the garden and he's to work it. He's to till it. He's to serve God in the garden. And this tells us this amazing truth that even in the very mundane tasks of life, the, the, little, the little tasks that we go about doing in our job, that, that, that's, a, that's a means of glorifying God. And so we see that this foundation, this world that God has put us on, as we, even as we step out of this church this morning, even as we sit here in this church with the foundation on the land, as we step out of this church building this morning and we go walking across the land, we are to remember that we, are, we have as this foundation a place where we can work and serve our God. That everything on the surface of the earth is for the glory of God. So we have a foundation. We have here also fertility. This land is given the ability to produce vegetation in general and plants and trees in particular. As Alan Ross states, this fertility is a self-perpetuating process decreed by God. It is a creative capacity from the true Lord of life. And so God invests, he empowers the earth to bring forth this vegetation. He gives the earth this fertility. And then we get food. This fertile land, we are told later, is for the purpose of feeding the animals and humans. Now, one of the interesting questions about the, uh, that, that surrounds the interpreting Genesis and the relationship between Genesis and, and science, the relationship between the, day, the different views of the days, the age of the earth, and so forth, all of these related questions one of the issues that emerges as these questions are being discussed and debated is could there have been death before the fall? And so you'll have someone like Wayne Grudem, for example, and many others who will argue, well, theologically, there really isn't a problem with having animal death before the fall. That animal death could, could very easily have existed prior to the fall, and that, that does not cause any problems for us theologically. My own view, at least as it stands now, is that, that uh, that's, that's, that's less satisfying to me than the picture I get at the end of Genesis 1, where it appears that plant life, that, that vegetation is the means of food for animals and for humans. This is what it says in Genesis 1, 29 to 30. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And listen to this. This is at the end of Genesis 1. And to every beast of the earth, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. That sure is a lot of uses of everything and every. You get the same language with the flood. All, every, all, every sounds universal, sounds worldwide. But here, Anyway, this language of everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, this is what it says, I have given every green plant for food. That implies that every creature on the earth ate plants. As difficult as that might be for us to understand, I've heard people debate this and some have pointed out, well, you have animals with sharp teeth who only eat plants. And that's true. There are some animals with, with sharp teeth that look like they would devour you in a second and devour animals around them which only eat plants. As I said before, this is a debated issue, but it seems to me 
with this plant life that you have the sustaining force that God intended before sin for animal and human alike so that you don't have lions devouring lambs. You have, as it will be, the lion lying down with the lamb at the end of time. It's the same image, I would argue, which is why in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, it seems that God actually does the first animal sacrifice, essentially, because after Adam and Eve sin, they are clothed with animal skin. This is the first indication that there was some kind of killing of an animal, and it's after that that human beings will go on throughout the years to sacrifice animals as a picture of the Lamb of God who will be slain for sinners. So as I said, these are debated questions, but it at least indicates to me that there is no reason for us necessarily to say that there were animals eating each other prior to the fall. Day three, I think, reminds us of three things. So I just want to look at three considerations or implications that we have as we think about this third day. First, God's control over the waters points us to his judgment and grace. Why do I say that? We have here a God who pulls together waters. He divides them vertically. He divides them horizontally. He pulls them together. He pulls them apart from the land so that the land emerges. He restrains them in their place. We get this language throughout the Bible, and we're told that it is by Christ that the world is upheld with his power. So we know that God sustains the world and through his laws, but through his very present power, he upholds the world and he keeps the waters separated and restrained. So why does does this control over the waters point us to God's judgment and his grace? Well, I think first it points us to the flood. It reminds us that in the flood, God let those waters come back. We had a land that had emerged as the waters were separated. And in the flood, we have the waters pouring back over all of the land. And the the world becomes, once again, covered under water. And that reminds us of the fact that this creator God is a God who judges sin. We're also reminded of the Red Sea. Remember when the Egyptians come out? I mean, the the Israelites come out of Egypt and they come up against a sea and the Egyptians have have let them go and the Egyptians begin to come after them because they've, they've changed their mind. Pharaoh's changed his mind. And there they stand between the Egyptian army with chariots and the sea. And what does God do? He sends a wind over the course of the night that separates the sea. Do you see the language there? He, he divides the waters so that his people can go through. And what does he do to the Egyptians with those waters? He brings those waters down on them in judgment, just as he had done at the flood. But it also reminds us of Noah and his family who were saved from the flood. And it reminds us of those Israelites who crossed through that sea on dry ground. In other words, as we meditate on these waters, our mind is immediately drawn to two very important biblical truths. And that is that God is a God who hates sin and he is a God who is abounding in love, gracious and merciful, and he saves sinners. So let me ask you this. Even as we look at this, this very sort of tedious creation account, as we look at these details... Have you considered that God is a God who will judge you for your sin? One day, you will stand before this God and give an account to him for your life. 
And unless Jesus Christ has borne the punishment due to you, you will suffer eternally for your sin. Have you considered that? His divine judgment. But have you also considered what he offers in Christ? Have you considered the fact that Christ is like the ark? That in him we we go into him and the floodwaters of God's judgment come upon the earth. And in Christ we are safe. So that's the first thing I think we're meant to think of. The second thing is that the fertility of the land after God's speaking reminds us that life comes from God alone. So chapter one, verse 11 says, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. This tells us that life with its DNA is from God speaking. The inanimate does not give rise to the animate. Material things like rocks and such Gases and rocks do not bring forth life. It doesn't matter how many billions of years you throw at it. It doesn't matter how many different processes you throw at it or how many different life forms you speculate about beyond our galaxy. Inanimate objects do not animate. God speaking animates. By faith, we believe that the worlds were made by the word of God. He speaks, and it is. That is why you have DNA. That is why you have cells. That is why you have breath. It's because God said. He brought life into being. Thirdly, the vegetation that is, from, that is for food points us forward to the fall. Satan's temptation and our sinful tendencies. This food, this vegetation, can't help but to remind the reader of Genesis. If you've ever read Genesis before, you can't help but to consider as we see this vegetation coming up from the earth and we see these trees bearing fruit, your mind can't help but to go to Genesis chapter 3 where we see the fall of man. As God says, you can eat from every tree in the garden. Everything, tree of life is there, a mystery as to what is going on with that. But the tree of life there in the garden, all of these trees, God says, eat, enjoy, be filled, be satisfied. But there is one tree which you cannot eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It reminds us that God provides for our good. Satan lies to us about what is good, and he questions God's goodness We doubt God's goodness and we seek our good apart from God. The vegetation on day three should remind us of all of that because it is at that scene of the tree that we see man deciding what is good for him rather than his maker. And here's the thing. God alone knows what is good for you. We every day wake up and seek what we think is good and right. This is going to make me happy. This is going to satisfy me. This is going to add to my overall welfare and longevity. And all the while, your maker who formed you in your mother's womb, who said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and blessed man. Our maker is telling us all the while in his word what is good and what is right and daily. We listen to the liar, Satan, and we sin because we think we can have good apart from God. I think the vegetation reminds us of all of this. Finally, as we finish up this morning, 
We have God and gods. What am I saying with all of that? Remember the title of our first sermon, Starting with God. Genesis is all about God. As I said there, it presents to us the Lord God. It presents to the Israelites the Lord God. Remember this. Don't forget this very important point as we go through all, this, all of this creation material. Don't forget the audience to whom this is going out. We have these Israelites who have been saved by God, and God is wanting to communicate to them who he is. That's what all of Genesis is about. So as we come to the creation narrative in Genesis 1, it's telling us who this God is. This is one of the major purposes of Moses in outlining God's creation. To debunk the pagan gods and to uphold the one true God. So, the god Baal in the Ugaritic myths is the rider of the clouds. He's the god of rain. So what does Moses want to say? Let me tell you where rain came from. The goddess Nut, an Egyptian deity whose body arched over the land and formed the sky. In the Egyptian myths, she was sort of formed over. You can see literal pictures of this. It's insane. But this sort of, she's, she's arched over like she's doing yoga or something. And that's the sky. You know, that's like the expanse. That was the understanding in the Egyptian myths. So what does Moses say? Now let me tell you how the expanse came to be. Let me tell you why it looks the way it does. Prince Yom, a Canaanite deification of the cosmic ocean, was worshipped. And so what does God say? Well, let me tell you how the seas came. I mean, what does Moses say? Well, let me tell you how the seas came to be, that God separated the waters below and gathered them up so the land would appear. That's why there are seas, not yum. And then Marduk and Tiamat, the Mesopotamian myths, uh, associated with these Mesopotamian myths. Uh, Walton, uh, a commentator on this passage says, Marduk assigns guards to keep the heavenly waters from flooding the earth. These waters are the remnants of Tiamat's body, which was split to form the waters above and the waters below. Once again, Moses is saying, rubbish, ridiculous. Mesopotamian myths that would have been associated with Abraham that would have carried through maybe to Abraham's descendants? No, Canaanite myths that Abraham would have encountered and his descendants would have encountered while in Canaan. No, Egyptian myths. Which the, Egypt, which the Israelites would have been inundated with for those years they were in slavery in Egypt. No, this is the Lord God. This is how the world was made. Moses writes that the people might trust in the real God, that they might trust him and worship him and abandon all alternatives. And here's what I, here's what I wanna leave you with this morning. All alternatives, two forms of alternatives. One form of alternative would be other gods. So Moses wants to present to the people the real God so that they will lay aside their idols. So here's what I want to submit to you. This is an opportunity as we go through Genesis to lay aside those things which you worship, to lay aside all of your idols because that is ultimately Moses' intention is to pull the Israelites' hearts, pull their hearts away from false, unsatisfying gods to the one true living God. Will you let Genesis do that for you? In all of your questions, in all of your speculations, in all of your disagreements with various views that you'll hear from me or that you'll read out there, in all of that, will you let Genesis do this work? And that is to uproot idols and to establish the one true living God. 
as your God. Another alternative that I think we find debunked are other forms of creation myths. We have those too. It's funny. We have a tendency to think that there is somehow a capital deification of that lofty word science. That, that all that some PhD geologist or astrophysicist or biologist says somehow gets sucked up into capital S deified science. And whatever schema, whatever origin story, whatever myth they give us for how it all began, we drink down ever so quickly. It is depressing to me how many evangelical leaders accept theistic evolution It is so-called evangelical leaders. It is depressing to me how many Christian leaders, pastors, preachers, scholars seem to be more afraid of men than God and the things that they accept so quickly without reservation from the propagators of origin myths in the modern time. There really is no difference at the end of the day between alternative myths, whether they be modern and academic or ancient and silly. Either way, they are alternatives to what the word of God tells us about where we came from. Let's pray. Our Father, We humbly submit to you as our God. We recognize our frailty. We recognize our limited understanding. We recognize how incapable we oftentimes are of seeing and understanding and knowing. So God, what a wonderful thing it is that you were there at the beginning. And you've told us how it happened. What a wonderful thing, Father that you present to us now a question. Will you trust me? Will you believe me? Will you follow me? Will you die to yourself? Will you embrace that which is foolishness to the world or not? Father, we just pray that you'll help us to be wise. We know that there are some things that we have potentially been taught over the years, Lord, that may not be true and right, and we have to set those aside and, and move on as human knowledge progresses and we understand the world more, but some things must never be set aside, Father. We pray that you will show us which is which. We know that only you can do that because only you know what was there at the beginning and how you did it all. You are the creator. We worship you as such. So, Father, help us to see and think. Help us be thinking Christians, not just those who drink quickly what the world tells us we ought to drink, but to think and read and discern God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.